For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Zach, um, and we are going to be going into our new Easter series. We're going to be taking three weeks to just learn about Easter, and uh, we're going to be starting with the triumphal entry, and then next week, uh, Mark is going to be talking about the crucifixion, and then the week afterwards, we are going to be studying the resurrection, and, and this is really, guys, to get just a full and complete appreciation for the Easter story. And, and we, we've titled this sermon, Behold. We, we've titled this entire sermon series, Behold, because we are going to be endeavoring to look at the Easter story from the entry all the way to the crucifixion to the resurrection, all from the crowd's perspective, all from the perspective of the disciples and how we are to look at Jesus, because we love to tell the story from Jesus's perspective, how painful it was for him and all of these things. But what does Easter look like from our perspective? How, how do we use Easter to worship God better? And how do we use Easter in order to recognize God's power and authority and worship uh, worthiness better? And, and so that's what we're going to be endeavoring to go through. And so if you guys want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to be this weekend. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read it from 28 to verse 40, and then we're going to pray. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethsaida and Bethany, at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And then they said, The Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their clothes, uh, their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. But then, as uh, he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, God, we love you. Lord, I ask for your complete sovereignty over this passage, Lord. You, you hold your word higher than your name, Lord. So I pray that you would, you would give it the weight, Lord, that um, you would desire. God, I pray that this, uh, this passage would have impact on our hearts, not because of the message that's going to be given, but because the passage and your word alone is sufficient to satisfy us. God, I pray that you would bless um, all the, some of the college students that are off on spring break right now as they're away from us, Lord, that uh, you would keep them safe, God, as, as they go into their own context back in their hometowns, Lord. I pray that you would bless them, you would give them uh, strength and vitality, and that you would give them a refreshment during this break that they have, Lord. God, and I pray, um, Lord, for all of us, that we would be able to find Sabbath with you in our hearts, Lord, especially tonight, God, that we'd be able to rest in your presence, Lord, that we'd be able to take that spiritual spring break with you, Lord. Uh, and God, uh, we just appreciate you so much and all the things that you're going to be doing tonight. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, Amen. Amen guys. Well, to give you guys a little bit of context of, of what we're going to be going through, and especially this passage, we have to know something that Jesus is on the tail end of his third year of public ministry. Jesus, he spent, he spent most of his life as a carpenter. He spent most of his life as a carpenter living the day-to-day -day work life, living the day-to-day -day school life as we do. So, so Jesus knew, how, knew what it meant to go through the faithful, everyday life of a Christian. Because what we need to know, guys, is that the Christian life, it's not a bunch of big leaps stagnant, big leaps stagnant. 
the, the Christian life is a constant progression, one step over the other. A lot of us, we're looking for the next spiritual high in our lives, but in reality, it's one step in front of the other, being faithful in the context that God's put us in. And Jesus, he spent very, very the most of his life in that context. He spent most of his life being faithful in the job that he was given, in his trade. And so Jesus spent most of his life there, and then he was baptized and ushered into his public ministry where he was about to do a radical work of changing the culture. And this is where we get the gospel. This is where we get the gospels that are written, where Jesus is constantly changing the culture around him, and his popularity is building and building as he's performing miracles and preaching sermons about on the word that nobody has ever heard before. People are always and constantly marveling at the words that Jesus spoke because they would say that he preached as one that had authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, many people would simply quote scripture, and many people would simply um, quote other rabbis, but Jesus, he would, he would lay out the word and he would teach as one who had authority, as one who had authority, as one who knew the word more so than just simply reading it, but knew how to internalize it and knew the real heart of it. And guys, Jesus gives us today the same authority via the Holy Spirit. You guys can speak the word with authority now, not as one who simply quotes scripture, not as one who simply is a scholar of scripture, but you can know it in new ways and have this authority. Jesus exercising this authority's popularity is starting to grow. His miracles, especially the miracles that he would perform, specifically the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was actually Jesus's prior visit to the city of Jerusalem. And since word had spread about Jesus bringing somebody up from the dead, that's actually why this huge crowd is flocking to see Jesus. It says, in, uh, as we see in John, it says that the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so all of these people meeting him in the triumphal entry as he's riding in on a donkey and they're putting palm leaves down and they're putting their cloaks down and they're praising Jesus and, and they're ushering him into the kingdom of Jerusalem. This is all because word had continued to spread that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for. They have come to this realization that since Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and everyone who had witnessed this is bearing witness all the time and word is spreading and word is building up the people are now realizing this guy is legit. This guy is the real deal. And, and, and as his popularity grows via the word of other people who have seen him, people are realizing that he is the author of life. He is the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for all this time. He's the one. He's the author of life. But we know something they don't know. We know something that these people don't know because we have the entirety of scripture in front of us. We know that Jesus at this time when he's entering in on the cult and people are praising him and people are laying down um, their cloaks and, and they're, they're just stoked that Jesus is around and he's going to bring in this new kingdom. We know something they don't is that at this point as he's riding in, he is pursuing the cross. He's pursuing the cross. He is pursuing it. And yes, I say pursue the cross. He is pursuing it. He is in active pursuit of the cross. You see, Jesus was not a helpless, as I have told you before, Jesus was not a helpless victim of God and man's sin. Jesus was not a helpless victim of our sin that, oh no, the cross is coming, right? Jesus purposefully went into Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be facing the cross. It says in Hebrews 12 too, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he said, I despise the shame of the cross. I, I don't, I don't, I don't even look at the shame of the cross. It's all for glory. I'm going with the joy set before me. I'm going to pursue the cross. We see that when people, when, when the soldiers went to go take Jesus so that they might crucify him, it says that Jesus actually went to them. They didn't come to Jesus. He went to them. He is in active pursuit of your sin, guys. He's not the victim of it, right? 
And I've I've told you guys this many times before, but I, I need to repeat it that Jesus is not the victim of the cross. He is the victor of the cross. He's not the victim. He's never been the victim. And by the Holy Spirit and what Jesus has done in our lives, we are no longer victims either. So stop feeling victim to your sin. You have victory over it via the Holy Spirit. Later on in John chapter 12, verse 27 through 28, after Jesus is having a conversation with his heavenly father, Jesus is having this conversation and this dialogue with God. And he says in John 12, 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I will glorify it and I will glorify it again. Jesus, he says, what shall I say? Father, don't let the cross come to me. What shall I say? No, 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 no. For this reason, I have come. And so we need to understand that while Jesus is being praised at this moment, and while all of the people, they're they're, they're starting to get really excited because Jesus is going to free them from the Romans, right? That Jesus is going to enter into this new political restoration, That Jesus is going to change the circumstances in which their nations have fallen under. Jesus is saying, no, that is not why I have come. The reason I have come is to die. To die. Jesus has begun his active pursuit of grabbing your sin, nailing it to the cross, drop kicking it, hitting it with a chair, everything. Right? He is in active pursuit of killing your sin. And as we see in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19, it says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass that he drew near Bethsaida and Bethany, and at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners had come to them and said, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Funny how when Jesus gave them an answer, like, what, what, do you, what do I say when people are like, Hey, stop stealing my colt, right? He says, they say, The Lord has need of it. And I like how that's just like a, an okay answer. You know, <laughs> stop stealing my car. The Lord has need of it, right? Like, that's just an appropriate Answer, I don't know. I'm not saying I have an explanation. I'm just saying that's weird. And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. And when they threw their clothes on the colt, they said, they sent Jesus on him. And he went and many spread their clothes on the road. Now guys, everyone is eagerly, as I said before, everyone is eagerly awaiting Jesus coming into town. Uh, they're already imagining all of these great things in their head about what he's gonna, how he's going to be the next David, right? They're just already imagining all of these amazing things coming from humble beginnings in Bethlehem, right? Just like David, Jesus came from Bethlehem, right? Humble beginnings, uh, defeating, and they're just waiting for him to defeat Goliath. And as, as we talked about last week, for those of you who are here, as we talked about last week, Goliath isn't the circumstances. Goliath is your sin. And, and, and we're not the David against our circumstances. Jesus is David against our sin. And, and, and so we learned that we are not the David in the David and Goliath story. Neither are our circumstances the Goliath in this story. And, and, and I, I really believe just using last week's sermon to make an illustration here, I really truly believe that the people of Israel, as, they were ent- as Jesus was entering and they were praising Jesus and they were super excited about the life that Jesus was going to bring them, I genuine, genuinely believe that they saw Roman oppression and political oppression as their Goliath. And Jesus was going to be their David, the next David, to defeat that Goliath, defeat the Romans, right? Defeat the oppression that they're under, defeat the political oppression. And they truly had painted Jesus to be this type of Messiah, where they, he was going to save them from their circumstances. They would expect a conqueror to come in on a war horse, enter in with a sword in hand and an army behind him. But we see that Jesus came here on a colt, a donkey. It says in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout in triumph. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king, king is coming to you, just as he is endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's amazing imagery language that Zechariah uses here. He says, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Shout in triumph. Your king is coming. And when we picture kings, we we picture someone strong, ready to to take on any challenge that is set before them. That that is what we picture as king-like, saving us from our circumstances. As we learned last week again, how with every circumstance, we make a king to save us. If your loneliness is your circumstance, you create the king of a relationship to save you. If if your feeling of inadequacy is your situation, you create a king of bad company to save you because they are always approving of what you do, right? So, So we have king, and then we have situation, situation and king. And so these people right here, you know, when we think of king, we think of someone to save us from our situation. We have these expectations of what a king is. But Zechariah, he prophesied that the, the king of Jerusalem, the, the, tri, the one who's going to triumph, the one who's going to bring in a new age and usher in victory for the people of Israel, was not going to come on a war horse ready to conquer, but he was going to come on a donkey, humble, humble. We're going to learn tonight that Jesus is not about fulfilling our expectations. That's not what he's about. He is not about fulfilling our expectations. He is not about meeting our conditions. And so, so tonight, we're really going to try and rewire our brains in the way we think of Jesus being a liberator in our lives. Because this is a triumphal entry, but it's not a triumphal entry in the way the crowd was perceiving it. They had made up this image of Jesus in their heads. And by all standards of what they had and what they were trying to imagine Jesus as, Jesus was not the savior they were looking for, but the savior they desperately need. So guys, as we endeavor in this this passage, it's it's gonna be short tonight. There are two things that I want us to take from this passage. There are two things that we need to know as believers as we look at the Easter story and the victorious Easter story as we look at how to worship our God, worship our Savior in a manner that is pleasing to Him and beneficial to us, there are two things from this passage we need to dissect, that we need to digest, that we need to take in. There are two things. And the first one, guys, the first one is that there is a level of commitment that comes with following and worshiping Jesus. There's a level of commitment that comes with following and worshiping Jesus. And here's what I mean. It says, then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Jesus asked them to go get a donkey, go get a a colt and a donkey. And, and, and so they go into town and they find, they find the colt that uh, Jesus was looking for and they bring it to him. Now that was Jesus's request. Yes. And they fulfilled Jesus's request. Yes. Participate. Yes. All right. I'm not alone up here. Cool. All right. So, so Jesus sent them to get something specific. Go get the donkey. Go get the colt. And so they brought it back. But then on top of that, on top of uh, performing the task that Jesus had requested, they took off their cloaks and they put it on the back of the donkey so Jesus could have a rest or a saddle for himself. And then all of the disciples, and and don't just think of the 12 disciples, Jesus, it says he had 70 specific disciples. And so all of the disciples then gathered around and they would put their cloaks on the floor in honor. And this sounds pretty weird because we live in America, right? We live in America, and I, I I just got back from high school camp with my kids. I just got back from high school camp. And... It's so crazy because we were there for three days, three days, two nights, three days, two nights, three days, two nights, three days, right? Okay, two nights, three days, tent camping. Why then do we need a suitcase like this big, right? 
right? I mean, all the guys, they come in with their, you know, their, their sleeping bag and a backpack. It. That's it, right? Girls come in just big, like their living room, right? Their kitchen, right? They, they just come in. The junior high girls were actually worse. I'll give the high school girls a little bit of credit, but the junior high girls were way worse. Just, just I don't know what they were expecting. They were preparing for the apocalypse, Okay, the, the, just so much, so much. So we, we, live, we live in this age where our closets are, they're huge. We have tons of shirts, we have tons of pants, we have tons of different uh, clothes, right? And, and, but back then, guys, back then, there was a significance to giving your cloak to someone because you only had one set of clothes. And the wealthiest among them had like three sets of clothes. And so they only had one set of clothes, meaning one cloak. One cloak to give. And the disciples, they sacrificed their time and their energy to go get the donkey. And I think that's pretty admirable. They obeyed Jesus. They obeyed Jesus. They, they sacrificed their time. They sacrificed their, their, their precious time and their obedience. And they got the donkey. They got the donkey. They got exactly what Jesus had asked. But then they went the extra mile and put their cloaks on the donkey's back. And there's, there's a lot of significance to giving your cloak in that day. Which, is, which, which was why it was so countercultural when Jesus said, hey, if someone tries to sue you for your cloak, give them your tunic also. Right? Someone tries to sue you for your jacket, give them your shirt also. Go the extra mile in that way because Christians, guys, Christians go the extra mile. We go the extra mile. You see, it's not about giving a specific amount to God. Christianity is not about giving this specific amount to God. And there are many churches and there are many denominations who say you have to meet this quote in what you give to God, in your finances, in your time. But here's the thing. It's not about giving a specific amount to God. It's not you have to give this amount of money, this amount of your time, this amount of your resources, this amount of your affection. It's not that you have to read your Bible at exactly this time and give your time to God at exactly this time. It's not that you need to tithe, you know, uh, $150, $250 each Sunday. It's not what it is. Guys, it's not about giving a specific amount to God. It's about giving your best to God. It's about giving your best to God. You see, we tend to make these standards for ourselves of what we want to give to God and what we don't want to give to God. So we'll, we'll be scheduling out our, out our finances or we'll be scheduling out our schedules and our time, right? And we'll find out, okay, so this is the time I give to this. This is the time I give to this. This is the time I give to God, right? I'll squeeze in some volunteer hours right here. And, and so, so we believe this to be how we give to God. But God's not asking for a specific time slot in your life. He's asking for the best time in your life. He's not asking for you to get up every single morning at the exact same time to worship and praise him. He is saying, give me the best of who you are at the time you do give to me. He's not asking for a specific, a specific amount. He's asking for your best. We need to give him our best. And so, yes, Jesus asked to go get the donkey. But then they, when they brought the donkey back, they put their cloaks on it as well. And then the others put their cloaks on the floor as homage to Jesus, as honor to him. In Genesis 4, starting at verse 2, we see this with the story of Cain and Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will it not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Why did God accept Abel and not Cain? And, 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 and people have been debating over this for, for so long. And it's not because God hates fruit. Right? 
You know, it's not because God didn't like Cain's sacrifice. It's not that it's not that a lamb was better than giving grains and fruit and, and, and the offering of the ground. That's that's not why. God doesn't pick favorites in that way, because, you know, looking at this at first glance, it really does seem like God's picking favorites here. Like, ah, I, I like Abel's, but not Cain's. And it really does look like Cain got gypped and Cain felt that way. Cain felt as if, well, why, why isn't my sacrifice good enough? Why isn't my time good enough? Why isn't what I do good enough as far as volunteering? Why isn't my finances good enough? I gave this amount. Hey, I gave more than that person over there, right? And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it will give us insight into why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and through it being dead still speaks. When you look at the direct translation, when it says that uh, he gave God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, it's actually translated, he gave his best sacrifice to Cain, uh, to, to God. He gave his best Sacrifice. He did not just give God a sacrifice. He gave God the best of what he had. And so, guys, it's not about giving time to God. It's about giving your best time to God. It's not about giving your finances to God. It's about giving the first fruits of your finances to God. Before you buy anything else, tithing it to the Lord. It's not about getting up in the morning and giving a time to God. It's about when you are awake and alive and ready to go in the morning, giving God the first time, the best time you have. It's not about volunteering just because you're asked to or because you think it's required of you. It's because this is the best you can give God. And, and, and I, think, I think too many of us expect other people to give the best, such as staff members, pastors, elders. But we give the bare minimum, right? And, and, and I, I fall under this as well. You see, there, there's people higher up than me, and I believe oh, they should be giving their best, right? But do I give my best? Do I give my best to God? Do I give the better sacrifice, the more excellent sacrifice to the Lord? And so that's why I'm saying there's a level of commitment that comes with following and worshiping Jesus. There's an all-in type of mentality that we must have. There's an all-in mentality that we need to go by. And if I haven't convinced you yet, let's look at Luke chapter 21, verse 1. And this is Jesus, and he says, He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites, two little pennies. And he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. If Jesus is who he says he is, if God is who he says he is, he deserves the best. You see, if God is not holy, if God is not almighty, and if God has not saved you from your sin, then he really isn't worthy of anything you have to offer. But if he is who he says he is, if he is the savior of your soul, and he is the king of your life, you know, accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and savior, if he is who he says he is, he deserves our best. And, and it's not like Jesus is saying, well, that widow didn't give as much as all these rich folk, therefore she doesn't deserve as much favor. Because we love to think in the abundance of our resources, if we can give more than somebody else, that means that God loves us more. If we can give more of our time than somebody, if we can give more of our resources to somebody, somehow it makes us better than them. However, Jesus would say, if there's someone who can give $1 to God and someone who can give $100 to God, who is rich though, that $1 can count just as much as the 100. He's saying if a stay-at-home mom 
who has like six kids, if she can give just 20 minutes of her time to the Lord and sacrifice that up. And, but, but then there's the college student who has like eight hours free on a Saturday and gives it all to the Lord volunteering at a homeless shelter. God's not saying one is better than the other. God is saying, I want your best. I want what you have to offer. If you don't have an abundance, it's okay. Give to me out of that abundance. There's a level of commitment that we need to have. They only had one cloak, and they decided to give that cloak to Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you have. It matters how much you give. Out of the abundance of your heart, out of, out of taking in the joy of the gospel, are you giving to him? Are you making that level of commitment to Jesus? And, and commitment for me may mean commitment, uh, totally something totally different for you. Me committing my life to Jesus and me committing uh, my resources and my time to Jesus can mean something totally different for you. You giving your time to the Lord, you giving your time to Jesus and your resources. It means something different for everybody, but never, ever, ever compare what you give to somebody else. If you have two mites and you're looking at all these people that give in abundance, you have the wrong attitude. This woman, when she was delivering just a couple pennies into the offering to God, she wasn't looking at the abundance of people that were bringing in huge bags of cash, blowing the trumpets, sounding the trumpets, and all the priests would leap for joy. All the priests would leap for joy that somebody was giving so much money, and then this little poor widow comes in, in the background, nobody noticing her except who? Jesus. There's so many people blowing their trumpets out there declaring how much they're giving to God. Don't let that distract you from you putting in your two mice. You putting in just your two pennies. God adores that. And when it comes time to accept which offering, God's going to accept yours. Because God owns everything, you know what I mean? God owns everything. He owns it. So if you're giving him a lot, he's like, yeah, I already got that. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? And so there's a level of commitment that comes with following and worshiping Jesus. That's the first thing I want us to really get out of this passage here with the disciples getting the donkey and getting the colt and coming in. The second thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage has to do with how the disciples interact with Jesus. And, and we see this right here. He says, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied." on which no one has ever sat, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now, now notice how Jesus picked a colt that had not been broken in yet. Right? He, he, he picked a colt, not that was trained, right? He picked a colt that has no idea what it's like to have a human being on them. Right? He picked that type of cult. He picked the stubborn one that nobody has ever sat on yet. The young one. The inexperienced one. The one that nobody would expect to sit on, Jesus sat on. And so the second thing I want to, to really just have us soak in tonight, this evening, as we, as we look at how to worship Jesus in a proper way, I want us to look at this. If you wish to partake in Christ's glory... If any of you desire to partake in Christ's glory, you must be willing and content with a slight ignorance of his plan. If you want to partake in who Christ is, if you want to partake in Christ's glory and his plan, you must be willing to deal with ignorance of what he's doing. And this frustrates us. This frustrates us. But if you want to follow Christ, you must deal with not knowing everything. You must deal with not understanding why Jesus does some things and why he does not do some things. You see, like I said, I'm going to be drawing some illustrations from camp because as I was writing this sermon, 
You know, usually I get to sit down on a computer for six hours and be before the Lord and have awesome worship music playing. And then I'll go out and I'll just look at the stars and be like, yeah, thank you, Jesus. And it's an awesome spiritual time. I wrote most of the sermon um, in the back of Dane's car with my little cell phone light, like shining down my Bible and a little pen while like everyone's sleeping in their tents. Right. And so that's that's where this sermon was constructed. And and so many youth kid analogies. But um, as as. You know, as I'm walking with a bunch of my youth kids and as we're doing different activities, you could always tell the kids that have been with me for a long time and the kids that haven't. There's some kids in the youth group that have been with me for about five years. There's some youth kids that have been with me for about five years. They know me. They know how I operate. They understand. And then there's some kids that they're, they're new to youth group or they just haven't been around me for very long. Some of the, most of the junior hires, they really, you know, they, they don't know how Zach ticks yet, right? And all of his quirks and, and the weird things that he does and his sinful nature that comes out when you say that one thing or whatever, you know? The, the kids learn how to tread delicately around me or, you know, they know how to make me laugh. But for the kids that don't know me very well, you'll often see them next to me asking me tons of questions, like, where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? What's the name of the place we're going to eat at, right? So, like, questions like this. Like, what type of burgers do they have? Should I get onions on my burger? Like, you know, they're just asking me, like, do they even have onions? Because I really like onions. You know, there was this one kid at camp that just kept asking me, where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? And I knew if I told him, there would be no comprehension of, of, of where we're going still. Because if I told him, like, where are we going? We're going to the Spot Burger. He does, he's never been there before. Before, right? He, he's, never, he's never been to where we're going. So if I told him where we're going, he has no, he has no, he can't cognitive, he can't understand, right? So why would I tell him? Why would I tell him? You know, if there is no answer that he can comprehend, why would I give him that answer, right? And so he keeps asking me questions, and my constant answer is, you'll see, man. <laughs> you'll see, bro. It'll be good. Like, it's good food, right? It's good food. Trust me. And he just kept asking questions. Kids that have been with me for a long time are just like, no, Zach's just taking us to food. I'm sure it'll be fine, right? <laughs> they just don't care, right? And, but, but kids that don't know me, are constantly wondering what the plan is. But if I told them what the plan is, it wouldn't make any difference. Because it's my will, <laughs> right? It's my will, what, what Zach wants, right? And, and, and so all this to say, when it says in verse 37, then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now you see, these people were praising God out of this anticipation that he was going to assume the throne. This praise that they're, they're spilling forth from their mouths. It is genuine in their hearts. However, it's misplaced. It's genuine, but it's misplaced. And, and this is what I mean. They are picturing their heads as they're worshiping Jesus. They're picturing this in their heads this overtake of Rome and this restoring providence to the nation of Israel like David did. This is what's going on in their heads as they're praising Jesus at this moment. You see... They're praising him and they're just picturing all of the amazing things that Jesus is going to do for their government, that Jesus is going to do for uh, their children, what Jesus is going to do for the society. And he's finally going to take the throne. And there's going to be like every Sunday will be healing day where we bring all our sick kids. And then there's going to be no more sick anymore. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more suffering. Jesus is going to be our king and he's going to be on the throne. And it's going to be amazing. And so they're cheering because he's going to overtake these oppressive Romans. Where were the praises and where were the cloaks when he's walking to the cross? They're so willing to lay down their cloaks when they have this image of what Jesus is going to do in their heads. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get my, I, I don't like taxes. Here's my cloak, Jesus. Jesus, you're going to take away my taxes. I don't like the way the Romans treat us. Here, Jesus, here's my cloak. Here's my resources. Lay it down at your feet because you're going you're to free us from the Romans. But when Jesus is on the cross, 
And he's walking and he's carrying that cross on his back and blood is dripping from his back on every angle. When the crown of thorns is being beaten into his head, when the beard is being pulled out of his face and he's walking and he's sweating, tears and and, and blood just dripping, drenched from him as he's crawling up. And as he's going, who laid down a cloak? Did anyone lay down a cloak for him? Did anyone take off their cloak and give Jesus the same honor as when he wasn't meeting their expectations as when he was meeting their expectations? Do we give on the same honor to Jesus even when he doesn't do what we expect him to? Do we give honor to God even when all of these ideas that we've put in our heads And all of this image of what Jesus is going to do for our culture and our country or in our personal lives and in our family. If Jesus doesn't meet those expectations, are we still raising our hands in worship to him? Are we still saying Hosanna to the son of David, glory in the highest? Are we still giving him our time, our resources, laying those cloaks down and putting them at his feet as he walks to the cross, not walks into the throne? They were so willing to give him so much honor because they had imagined a different savior. We give to God often when he can meet our expectations, but what about when he doesn't? What about when he doesn't, guys? And I'm so guilty of this. I'm so guilty. I, uh, you know, I don't like to, you know, tell this story too often. I won't go into great detail, but last year I had this expectation of what God was going to do in my life. I thought I was going to get married last year. I had this total expectation that I was going to get married, that I had the ring and everything. I had this complete and total expectation of what God was going to do for the rest of my life. There's some things happening um, on, on other angles, professionally, you know, as, as, as a leader in the church, there's some other um, new and exciting things that had been brought to the table, and so I had drummed up these other ideas of, of, of planting a church somewhere. And so I had this prospect of a wife, and I had this prospect of being able to plant a church. And there, there's these things just swirling, swirling in my head. Just so many expectations and so much spiritual high out of it. Because I'm just, I have my, I have my eye set upon the future in this manner. And I'm just stoked at who God is. But I was stoked at who I thought God was. I had had created a God. I, I had forced God to fit my own image. And so when later on along the road, when I had been, betrayed in some manner I realized I, and, 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 and it was and if, and if it had happened when I was in a less mature part of my faith it would have broken me but I finally got to this point where I'm like wow I need to stop expecting things I just need to stop expecting things to happen and you know what guys there is more joy that I experience today not presuming things about God, but getting to find out things about him. There's so much more joy in living life day by day and being surprised by the awesome thing God does instead of planning out the next 10 years of my life and then constantly being disappointed because God doesn't fit my plan. And so guys, stop presuming things about God. Stop mapping out your life and giving that to the altar of the cross and saying, this is what blessing means, Lord. Bless me. And, and, and so we need to stop with this mentality. We need to stop planning these things in our heads. We need to understand that Jesus has his own way of getting glory. He has his own way of reaching glory. He has his own way of blessing us. And it's so much better than ours. And so once we stop presuming things about God, once we stop making plans for him, there's more joy in the life we live with him. Because these people's praises were twofold. These people's praises were twofold. The work that Jesus had done, Lazarus, 
and then the work that he was going to do. And that's where they fell. They were doing great job. They were doing an awesome job of praising God because of what he had done for Lazarus, which is raising him from the dead. God loves it when we look at his past faithfulness and we say praise you for that because, because I know that you're going to do that in the future. So we look at his past faithfulness and we say, of course, you're going to be faithful in the future, but we don't presume on how he's going to be faithful. We must never do that. Because here's the thing, guys, none of his disciples at any time in scripture, when they saw a miracle that Jesus did, none of them are saying like, called it, James, give me five bucks, right? None of them are saying that. None of them are saying, totally called, Jesus was going to walk on water. Totally called it, right? Nobody looked at the situation with Lazarus and was like, well, yeah, (laughs) right? Nobody does that. None of us in our lives have looked at the awesome things and the awesome blessings that God has given us, and we'd be like, well, I mean, duh, right? So here's the thing, guys. We need to look back at his faithfulness and use that as the standard for his faithfulness in the future. And here's the standard. Here is the standard. How faithful has he been to us, and how many blessings has he given us? A lot, right? He's, he's been faithful countless times. And if you're like, no, he hasn't, you haven't looked hard enough. Or you haven't had your eyes open to what God has saved you from. But God has been extremely, extremely faithful in the, in the past. But rarely are we like, Psh. you know, when, when those situations are happening and God is delivering us, rarely are we like, Psh. yeah, Jesus, just like we planned, high five, right? <laughs> We, we, we never do that. We never do that. We're like, all right, Jesus, here's the game plan. You go left, I go right. We meet in the middle. We do this, high five, candy for everyone, good, right? We never, it never happens that way. It's always us going this way, God going this way, him getting a lasso and pulling us over violently, right? And him, him dragging us over because we have our own plan going on. And so we need to look at that past faithfulness of the Lord, how he's always faithful to save us from these situations. We need to look at that and we need to say, wow, looking back, um, I had no idea what God was doing at the time. And now looking back at it, I'm like, wow, good job, God, right? So as we look for his future faithfulness, we need to expect to be surprised by him right? That way, that way, when Jesus is going to the throne or going to the cross, I give my cloak anyways, right? No matter what Jesus is doing in my life, whether it seems like he's refining me, right? Disciplining me or whether it seems like he's rewarding me for, for something, right? And giving me blessings that I didn't necessarily ask for, Whichever way Jesus goes, because I know he's been faithful every time in the past, and I know it declares in his words that his promises are true, no matter what situation God is taking me in, I'm going to be able to take off my cloak and give it to him. I'm going to be able to give him my time, my resources, willingly and lovingly, because I don't presume anything about God. I let him surprise me. That's, that's, isn't it nice, like, it, uh, let's think about this romantically for a second. It's nice to be surprised by your significant other, right? In good ways, right? It's nice. It's nice to be surprised. Some of you are like, oh, heck if I know I'm single, right? <laughs> right there with you. It's okay. It's nice to be surprised. It's nice to be surprised. We need to allow ourselves to be romanced by Jesus in that regard. We need to allow him to not do what we expect. We need to relinquish that control. You look at his future faithfulness through the lens of his past faithfulness. I'm going I'm to ask the worship team to come back up and we're going to be taking communion. And when you look back, guys, when you look back at all the things that Christ has done, when you look back, you realize that you were never really in the loop, right? <laughs> Like right from the get-go, you were never really in the loop with God's plan. And so we need to be willing to accept that ignorance, right? God is going to show us a lot of awesome things. He's going to show us our plan. But do you know what? Be very wary of making two-year, four-year, eight-year plans with God. Be very careful. 
Because you can make all the plans you want. You can build as much as you want. But at, one, at, at any point, God's allowed to go <coughs> to your sandcastle, right? Nope. And then build you a better one, right? And build you a better one. And so we're going to be worshiping and we're going to be taking communion, guys. And communion is just that. Communion is just that. It's rewiring our hearts to look at the cross as it is now, right? Because we need to be able to stay in the present as Christians. We need to stop looking to the future so much, and we can't have an unhealthy view of the past. We need to live in the present now. How does the gospel affect us now? How can I lay my cloak down before Jesus now? Not how I have done it in the past, not planning how I am going to give Jesus honor in the future, but how can the cross affect me, and how can I be affected by the cross, and and how can I participate in God's life right here, right now? That's why we take communion every day. Sunday. We take communion every Sunday because it it brings us back to the cross now. Right? It's super easy to read in the Bible about the cross and remember the cross as as a past event, but Jesus is currently interceding and dying for you now, laying down his life so that you might have abundant life now. And we're remembering that sacrifice that he makes. We're remembering this, and and we're also remembering the victory that he has over it. And so as, as you take the bread, guys, you need to remember that Jesus, he lived a perfect life for you, but it wasn't the life that you would have necessarily made up for him. And it wasn't the life that people made up for him. He lived a perfect life, and his body was broken, and his body being broken was not part of their plan but aren't you glad it happened? The people of Israel would have had it differently, right? And if God had given into their plan, how would we fare today, right? And and so as, as as we remember the body that was broken for us, the body that was crucified for us, we thank God for the sacrifice that he's made and that his plan is greater than ours, even if it's not the one we expect. And when we take the juice, when, when, we, when we take it, it's a symbol of the blood that was shed for us. It was a symbol of the blood that was shed, and it was a symbol of him. He, he's just saying, let me cover you with my purity. Let me cover you with my, my pure blood. I haven't sinned. You have. You have my blood. You look righteous before God. And so he's saying, enter into covenant with me. And this is entering into covenant with him right now. Now, we're forgetting about the sins that you've committed in the past. We're not worrying about the sins you've committed in the future. Right now, you have a choice to be a part of God's covenant relationship. And so we worship and we raise our hands, but we don't raise our hands and we don't sing because God meets our expectations and God does what we want him to do, amen? We praise him because even when we ask him for things, he does the exact opposite because it's way better for us. Amen? Lord, we love you. We give you this night, Lord. And God, though there are few of us tonight, I believe that our voices, God, are are double, Lord, so much more precious to you. God, that we would give you what we have. Lord, um, I just want to lay my cloak at your feet tonight. I want to give you the best of me. I want to give you the best of who I am and what I have to offer you, Lord, because you're worthy of it. Not because you need it, but because you're worthy of it. Lord, help me to look at your word and look at my own life. God, not presuming anything from you, not expecting anything from you, Lord, except for your faithfulness. God, I can't wait to be surprised by what new mercies you have for us tomorrow. God, I can't wait for the drive home tonight where you're going to surprise me with new mercies. Lord, help us open up our eyes to the new things you have for us. Allow us to be surprised by the blessings that you have to offer us and not be constantly disappointed that you don't meet our expectations. We all recognize here tonight, Lord, in our hearts, God, that you are so much greater than us and we worship you because you're so worthy of it we love you. We love you for who you are, your character, and what you've done for us, Lord. 
be honored and blessed tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.